All right, John chapter 1 for our study. John chapter 1. We began the gospel of John last week, and we saw that John wrote his gospel, unique from the other three, that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's the Christ, and that He's the Son of God, and that through believing in Him, you would have life. That's why he wrote his gospel. And then in the first five verses, we saw that John introduced us to Jesus by calling Him the Word. He's the eternal Son of God who created all things and who shine light into the darkness that is our broken world. Well, having introduced us to Jesus in this majestic way, in verse 6, John is now going to move into another important truth about Jesus, that this word, this logos, that he didn't stay separate from his creation once history began, but that he took part in our history. And in explaining that, John refers to Jesus by another word, the light. So we will read the first five verses, but we'll pick up our study in verse 6 this morning. Verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, did not seize it or apprehend it, could not stop it. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. So, John now introduces us to his first witness. Remember, we talked last week that throughout his gospel, John, to prove his point that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we can have life through his name, through believing on his name, he's going to bring numerous people to the witness stand as to give their personal testimony about Jesus. And then he's going to share with us eight things that Jesus did only God can do and eight things Jesus said that only God can legitimately claim. Well, his first witness is John the Baptist, and he introduces him to us here in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, that word was has been important in the first five verses because it is always referred to something that was continually in existence. But here, it refers to something that has a beginning. It's a different was. You see, John's first witness that he calls here is not an eternal being. He's not majestic like Jesus. He's just a created man. And yet, because God sent him on a mission, this witness has a really important qualification that sets him apart from other men. Now, the John that he's referring to here, whose name was John, is not himself. This is John the Baptist. John never refers to himself by name in his gospel. So this is John the Baptist. And what was John the Baptist's mission from God? Well, it tells us in verse 7. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. The mission that God sent John on was to come to us into this specific role of being a witness. The word witness, it means to provide information about a person or an event from firsthand knowledge. Now, We've already been introduced to Jesus. In verse 4, it taught us that Jesus has life in and of himself and that he offers this eternal quality of life to all humanity. And then verse 5 taught us that Jesus is constantly shining the light of his life into our darkness. Well, now John tells us that God sent John the Baptist 
to provide firsthand information about that life-giving light, about Jesus, so that all men would come to trust that light. Now, it's important that we point out here what all means here. You may have noticed men is in italics. It's just the word all. So, it doesn't mean all kind of ethnicities, nor does it mean all kind of statuses that men might have. It means every person of all time, every human being. So, the John's point is that no one can say, well, John the Baptist's testimony, his info, his firsthand testimony about Jesus doesn't apply to you. No one can say that. No one can say it doesn't apply to me. Everything John's going to tell us about Jesus, it does apply to all of us. And since John the Baptist's information is on record for us in the Scriptures, it's not just, well, all that heard John the Baptist preach. It's all men of all time. I love what one commentator, he said, that all may believe is the good and gracious will of God. Isn't that awesome? That's what God wants. God wants all men to believe. He goes on to say, this good and gracious will of God, it's universal in extent, excluding not a single sinner. So everything that God's going to announce to the people he spoke to and that we're going to read about, it applies to you. It applies to me. So the goal is that all men, through him, through John the Baptist's testimony, might believe. That word believe there, the reason the word might's there is because it's in the mood of possibility. So it's possible for all to believe. That's crazy when you think about it. It is possible that all could believe. However, it's also possible that none could believe, which brings us an important point, that God's goal in sending John the Baptist is for all men to respond and believe and not to reject it. Now, what does it mean to believe? Well, certainly it means to believe something is true or to be true, but the word goes beyond that in the New Testament language. It means because you believe it to be true, you also count it worthy to be trusted. Worthy to be trusted. So God's goal in sending John the Baptist, his mission is for all men to believe his words and decide that Jesus' light is to be trusted. The choice, therefore, to trust Jesus' light or to reject Jesus' light is each individual's to make. But God's goal is that all would trust Jesus' light. Amen? That's a powerful, powerful truth. Do you realize how much God loves you? Think about it for a minute. That his heart is to bring you close, not keep you at a distance, certainly not to judge you. If you want to reject that love, that's an option. But I don't want anyone here today leaving, questioning if God wants you, because the truth is He does. He does. You say, why would He want me? I don't know. <laughs> but I can tell you He does. He has set his love upon you. It's fascinating. We confuse things. We get all tied up in our, our heads. My very first pastor used to call this our educated idiot box. Because we know stuff, right? But at the same time, we get caught up and hung up on what we think we know. And so we try to reason through things sometimes and they don't make sense. So we say, well, I love, and then you think of all the things that you like in life and why you love them. 
Like most of us wouldn't say, why do you love your spouse? She's a horrible person. What? What? Like we would say things, like when we do premarital counseling with young couples, we sit down and they go, why do you want to marry them? Well, they, they're wonderful. They're, they love Jesus. And, you know, they go through the list of, oh, it's beautiful. He's handsome. He stands up for his faith. He works hard. All these things. Like nobody ever says to you, I'm not very attracted to them. I don't really even like them that much, but I've chosen to love them. Right? We don't describe things that way. And yet, because of that, sometimes we associate God's love in the same way. That like, well, like, why do you love me? Well, you know, you're kind of bright, Will, and you are good looking sometimes when you get a haircut. No. So somehow we think, well, because there's nothing, there's nothing lovable about us or nothing like worthy of God's love, we somehow make the mistake of thinking that God's love is not, it's not emotional, it's not connected to us, that he doesn't like us, and that some of us certainly are more desirable than others. No. God has set his love upon us. He has decided to love us in spite of us. He wants us. Like, sometimes we can think of God's love that he tolerates us. That's not what the Bible teaches. He loves us. He wants you. So do not leave here today. If you want to reject him, that's your choice. But do not leave here today thinking that God does not want you. Do you realize how much God loves you? So, well, what information is John going to share with us? Well, it's this, that even though he has a special mission, he is not the solution to our darkness. Look at verses 8 and 9. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. John is indeed a messenger. He does have a special mission from God, but he is not the answer to our darkness. He was not that light. That phrase was not as, as that eternal quality to it again. He has never existed as, never at any time was he the answer. He was not that light. John the Baptist was just a man. He can't be the light because he wasn't around before he was born. But what's interesting when it says he was not that light, it tells us that the light is a person, right? That means the light isn't just something that shines, it's a person. So when John is introducing this idea of the light, it's very similar to when he introduces Jesus to us as the Word. In the same way that Jesus is the Logos. Remember we described him last week, the Logos, that he's the thinker behind the thought, the thought behind the words and the words that help us to understand the thinker. In that same way, Jesus is the light. It's not just that he shined light into the darkness of human existence, but he is the light that shined. Well, what's the significance of that? Two things, verse 9. That was the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. So number one, this means that while John is not the answer, he's just the messenger, Jesus is the answer to our darkness, right? Literally, that was the true light means the true light just was. The, Jesus is the word true that means something genuine, something sincere, something that's not imaginary but real. I love what A.T. Robertson said. He said, Jesus is not a false light of wreckers of ships, but the dependable light that guides to the harbor of safety. 
There are many people who've claimed to have the answers to our world. There will be people asking for your vote next year who will claim to have the answers, at least to our country, right? There are many people throughout history who've claimed to have the answers to the darkness that's in our world. Now, there are some of those individuals are easy to look at and go, you're just crazy, right? There are people who've claimed to go, I'm the reincarnation of so-and-so, or I'm God come to visit the planet. And we tend to dismiss those individuals. But there are other individuals who came claiming that I have the answers. I am the answer to the darkness. And they have thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people who follow their words. Jesus is not a false light like a Buddha or a Muhammad. He is the genuine light. He does not give us a light that wrecks the ship of our life, but instead he leads us to that safe harbor of truth. Jesus is the real deal. He is no idyllic philosophy or religious system. He is not just the concept of light. He is the answer. He is that light. And Jesus is qualified to be the answer because as the start of the sentence says, just the true light was. He always was. In the same way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's always been His existence. In the same way, He's always been the true light. Jesus has been shining His light into all the time of our darkness. Even before John the Baptist came to tell us about it, even before he came into our world as a man, he has always been the answer to our darkness. And number two, the second significance is that Jesus has illuminated all who are in darkness. That was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. The phrase which lights there, it means which continually illuminates or shines upon. And it says that he does that for every man. From the moment of creation, Jesus has illuminated, is illuminating, and will illuminate. The word every there means all, every, each, the whole of humanity. Every single human being has experienced Jesus' light shining on them. Now, the phrase here, that comes into the world, the word that comes is a participle which modifies the direct object of the sentence. The direct object here is every man. So he is illuminating every man from the moment they come into the world to the moment they exit this world. Now, why am I bringing that up? I bring this up because almost all modern translations, probably most commonly that you might have today, like an NIV or an ESV, they write this verse differently than I just read it to you. They write it as this, the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So they say that the was coming is referring to Jesus. The problem is that removes the power of what John is saying. I mean, he's going to tell us in just a few verses, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we know he's coming, that there's no significance to that here. He's the true light that's coming into the world. Why even put that there? It makes no sense. The true power of what John is saying is that Jesus is illuminating every human being from the moment they're born. That's how much he loves us. 
Megan Rapinoe, you may have heard of her. She is a famous soccer player. She played in the final soccer match of her career last week, and sadly, very sadly, she tore her Achilles in the first six minutes and missed the most of what was to be kind of her last hurrah, her last game. Very sad. You always kind of want to go out on top, not go out with an injury and miss, miss most of the game. Well, in the post-game news conference, obviously people wanted to ask her how she felt because that was not how this was supposed to play out in her mind. She said this, and this is a direct quote. She says, I thought about it a little bit. She had time to think, obviously, while everyone else was playing. I, had, I thought about it a little bit. I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, like, this is proof that there isn't. Now, her statement presumes something. It presumes that we are already enlightened, right? That everything's fine between us and God, that we're in perfect harmony, perfect fellowship, and that our world is not in darkness, and He, he owes us blessings, right? That's, there's a presumption there. Her words are a declaration that she believes John is wrong about our world being in darkness, that Jesus has not been shining on her from the moment she was born, seeking to rescue her from that darkness. And therefore, Jesus either does not care about her or does not exist. But John says here that there's not a single human being that can look at their life in both the joys and the tragedies. And no one can say that Jesus does not care about me. That's what John's saying here. He's not just informing us that Jesus was coming. He's saying that Jesus has been shining his light upon you from the moment you took your first breath of air through all your sin, through all your selfishness, and even in those moments when you criticize him for your troubles. He's still shining his light on you. I think one of the most common questions I get from believers and, of course, unbelievers is, I just have a hard time with the concept of hell or judgment, eternal judgment. But understanding that Jesus has been shining his light to us from the moment we breathe our first breath to the moment we breathe our last is why no one will have an excuse when they stand before the white throne judgment and they are sentenced to an eternity in the lake of fire. No one will have an excuse. Because when you're there, standing before the Lord and receiving judgment, in that moment, all the light that Jesus gave you for all of your life will be very clear. There will be no, where were you, God? You'll see it, and you'll know it. And you'll come to a, a realization a horrifying realization that it was not him that did not love me, it was I who did not love him. That it was not him failing to listen to me, it was me failing to listen to him. And that is why it will be fair and it will make sense and why believers will stand and see that and go, just and true are your ways, O Lord. You are righteous to do this. If you're listening I know we could be here and not be listening. So if you're listening this morning, you need to know this. There is a God, and his name is Jesus, and he has always cared for you, always. And he always will, even up to the moment you defy him with your last breath. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible teaches. He loves you. You know, life is a mess. We sing that song, you know, Christ is my firm foundation when all around me shaken. 
one of the most reliable things to just kind of rest on is something that never changes. That I can look out and go, well, this is wrong and this is bad and this is not how I wanted it to turn out, but God loves me. Jesus loves me. That has not changed. I can set my feet on that ground and it's not murky. It's not confusing. It's solid. And it will always be there no matter what else is going on. Amen? Well, that we live in darkness is proved by the fact that even though Jesus' light has been shining from the beginning of creation, the Bible, John tells us next that the whole of creation doesn't know him. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. John says here that Jesus was in the world. Now, this is not referring to the incarnation. The the word in here is a a preposition that conjures the picture of something that's inside a box. It's referring to our, our universe, the structure of everything God created. And what John says here is that when he was in the world, he's saying, Jesus has been active in the box. Jesus was always working inside the structure of our universe, even though he existed in separate from the universe and and eternally in heaven, he he is not an aloof creator. You know, there are some who who say, well, I do believe in in God or a creator because I know that none of this could just happen by chance, but I believe he just kind of set the universe in motion and then he walked away. That he's an aloof creator. Well, Jesus, John says, is not an aloof creator. He didn't set the universe going and then abandon it. He's been involved in it from the very beginning. And yet, an important truth, just by nature of Jesus' involvement did not mean that all humanity was in a relationship with him. That did not equal all humanity being in a relationship with him. For it says, even though he was in the world, the world was made by him, the world knew him not. And that word know, it's that to know by experience, to, to have that relationship with, to someone you recognize, someone that you're aware of. This word, the way it's written, it, it describes a snapshot of how things were in the world. The idea is you see a photograph and Jesus is clearly there, clearly active, the entire time, interacting with his creation. But in addition to that, there is humanity in the picture where this very active Jesus is either at best ignored or at worst rejected. And instead, you see a picture of humanity worshiping created things like the sun or the moon or an animal or forces like nature or knowledge. He was involved but the world rejected their creator and remained in darkness. So, in light of that, God chose from out of humanity a specific people to better share his light, to better show his light, the Israelites. And then to more clearly shine that light to all humanity, Jesus himself became an Israelite. But the result, sadly, was the same. Verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, this is, this is referring to the incarnation because the word came is different than the word was. This describes something that was new, something that had a beginning. Jesus became a man, and he came unto his own. This is more than just interaction. The word unto here actually means into. It wasn't just that he was active in the box, but he moved into the box. This is not just interaction. It's more than that. It's infiltration. 
This is John's first mention in the gospel of the incarnation. And he says, the eternal, limitless Son of God laid down the privileges of deity and became a man. Jesus never ceased to be God, but, and he could have laid hold of those privileges of deity at any moment, but he laid them down and he took on a body and became a man. The logos, the thinker, who is the source of all life and all wisdom, he was like the actor who breaks the fourth wall. You know, normally we, there's kind of an unwritten rule. They pretend like we're not there and they go on and they do their show, and then we are receiving what's going on in the show. But Jesus broke the fourth wall. He engaged with the audience. He engaged with creation. He became a man and engaged with us, interacted with us in the same way we interact with each other. He came unto his own. This does not refer to the Israeli people. The word his own there literally means his own home, his own property. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He lived in Nazareth. He went to Jerusalem. He went to the temple. These were either all places that belonged to him or places that bore his name. In Genesis 17, 8, when God was making the promise to Abraham, he said, and I will give this land that you see to you. I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. You can't give it unless it's yours to begin with. He came into his own home, his own property. I heard a bizarre thing this week. Someone said to me, they heard someone making the claim that Jesus was a Palestinian. I'm not sure why they're uttering that, but have you ever, you know, people sometimes go, wow, the genealogies in the Bible, they're really, they're really laborious. This is why they're there. Because there's going to be claims that people make, and we will be able to go and say, well, let's look and look at the facts. Oh, wait, no, he's not. He's clearly an Israelite. He's born of the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem, right? He was Jewish, right? He was nothing else. You can't label him any other way. He came unto his own, his, his home, the promised land that he had said, my, it's the, the apple of my eye. I love what John says next. Came unto his own, it belonged to him, but it says his own did not receive him. This refers to his people. Same word, but written a little differently to refer to his people. I think sometimes, whether you're Jewish or not, we can get a complex of like we're, we're better than others. And what Jesus is, John is saying here is that the world rejected him, but so did the people who should not have, who knew better. J.C. Ryle says, he came to the very people whom he brought out of Egypt, whom he had separated from other nations, to whom he had revealed himself by the prophets. He came to the very people who, he had, who had read of him in the Old Testament scriptures and who professed to be waiting for his coming. And they did not receive him. Little aside here, there are some today who would say, well, since the Old Testament is the shadow and the New Testament is the substance, we don't need to study the Old Testament anymore. There's a problem with that because you can't have a shadow without light. There is no shadow if there's no light. So if Jesus is that light that we need, and yes, the Old Testament is described as a shadow, that means there's light there, which means we're going to have an incomplete picture and understanding of Jesus if we don't know what the Old Testament says. So we need to study the Old Testament as well. 
Now again, when you read verse 10, you go, well, that's the world, but verse 11 should be a different photo, a different snapshot. And again, received is, is that snapshot verbal. And, and so the idea is you would think you'd see a, the snapshot of Israel's Messiah coming to them differently, but John says it's actually quite similar. He says they did not receive him. And the word means to not bring him along with them, to not accept. In other words, they were going this way, but they didn't take Jesus where they were going. They didn't take the light with them. They did not accept him into their, their plans, into their, into their group, and they just kept going. Jesus had given this land to his people, but when he came to give them the full spectrum of light by walking in their midst, they rejected him just like the world had. Now, if we just had verses 10 and 11, we would, that'd be very gloomy. <laughs> like we could look at that and go, well, I guess is anybody saved? Is all humanity doomed? Is the world going to be full of darkness forever? And John says, well, no. For while many did ignore, both in the world and in Israel, the true light, many did, many rejected the true light. There were exceptions both in the world and in Israel. And so he says in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That phrase, as many as, it means each and every individual, either within the world or within the nation of Israel. If they made a different decision about the true light, well, Jesus gave them something. Now, this word received here, one linguist describes it this way. It means to take Jesus as he offered himself and thus to receive all that he is. To take Jesus as he offered himself and thus to receive all that he is. In other words, it's not to receive Jesus as I want to receive him. It's as he offered himself, right? It's on his terms. But at the same time, it's the actual reception of all that he is for my benefit. So, as many as received him, based on that reception, Jesus gave all these individuals the power to become the sons of God. The word power here, it's not ability. It's not like Jesus gave you a level up and it's like, oh, now I can make myself a child of God. No. He gave us, the, the word here means the right or the privilege. And it means a privilege or right granted by a qualified source. I can, I can say, you own the entirety of Winter Park now. That's yours. I'm not a qualified source. Okay? My, just words. But Jesus being the Word, right? The eternal Son of God, He is a qualified source to give to us the right to literally become something we are not, to exist differently to become, King James says sons of God, but it means children of God. It refers less to our adoption as his sons or our position as joint heirs with Christ. It has more to do with we're part of the family of God. We're just a part. We're his now. We do not exist as God's kids by nature. Like you may have heard people said, we're all God's children. I mean, if you're saying that we've all been created by God, so he's our creator, then I guess that might make sense. But from a biblical sense, the Bible's very clear, we are not all God's kids. 
Maybe you've done this with your kids sometimes. They're acting up. They're being really silly and embarrassing. And you're like, you turn to your spouse, you're like, that's your kid. And the reason we would say something like that jokingly is because they're acting in a way that we're not, not proud of that. You had a bad attitude or, or they're really just losing it or they're just being so silly and embarrassing. You're like, that's not, that, I would never do that. Not my, that's your kid. So the concept is, is that when we, we own them, like that's my boy, it's because we're proud of their behavior, right? Like we're, we're happy with the way they're living. Like we, we say, that's how you should live. So on what basis of evaluation of our behavior would we ever think that we're by nature God's kids? Like look at the world right now. Look at what a mess it is. If you could look out here and go, that's what God's like. Nobody would want to be in heaven. But we're not by nature God's kids. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it tells us that we exist as children of disobedience by nature. My nature is Adam's nature. <laughs> My nature is to sin, to be nothing like God at all, to be nothing like God. And then I am also not just a child of disobedience by my nature, but I'm a child of wrath by choice. I don't stand under his blessing, but because I've chosen disobedience, I've chosen to act on my nature, rather than repent and turn to the Lord, I'm under his wrath. I'm not his kid either way. But when we receive Jesus, he, the the word who has always been, who flung worlds into existence, He recreates us into something we were not before. He graciously gives us the right to a new name, child of God. That's why we call it being born again. You're born again. You're recreated. Another term for it is regeneration. We are regenerated, rescued from the darkness, and brought into the wonderful communion that Jesus has with the Father. Remember when we said in him was life? Like he is self-existent. He and the Father have always existed, and they've existed in perfect union and communion with one another for, for all eternity past. And when he says his life was the light of men, he has invited us into that communion with him and his Father. Perfect. Well, when we are born again, we're rescued from the darkness and we are brought into that relationship that they already have together. I love what Lenski says. He says, those who rejected the Logos, look here, was there any reception, any gift for them? No, they received nothing. They remained what they were. They just continue forward as they are. Destitute, blind, spiritually dead. And he says, this is what they missed out on and it's holy through their own fault, holy through their own fault. Jesus says, or John says, to as many as received him, received Jesus, the light, the word, he gave them this gift of regeneration, a new life. I realize that theologians get all hung up and then they get on their YouTube channels and, and they describe to you how you should not preach the gospel. Don't go to any church that says, would you like to accept Jesus? Would you like to receive Jesus? And I understand why they say that, because there is a way that people portray getting saved as something that's not a serious deal. They might not talk about sin or things like that. But the argument is moot, because John says to as many as received him. John says to as many as accepted him. We don't need to make it more complicated. It's simple language for a reason, because it's not supposed to be complicated. To as many as received him, 
he gives this beautiful gift. And so the difference between the individuals of verses 10 and 11 and the ones in verse 12, that's also not complicated. Verse 12, those individuals received Jesus. Verses 10 and 11, those individuals did not. End of story. That's it. It's not complicated. And just in case we're tempted to make it more complicated than that, John clarifies what he means by receive. He says, even to them that believe on his name. The word on there, it actually means into, even those that believe into his name. And if, it's, if it was believe on his name, it would mean accepting the truth or a statement about a person or a thing. It's into, it means not just to accept the truth about that person, but it means to rest upon that person to trust in that person, to rely on that person. In other words, to believe on Jesus is not just to believe the facts of his historic life or even that he can save you, but it's to rest your soul upon him, to embrace the light that he shines. Give your life to him, to receive him and all that that entails. Believe on his name. His name is everything we've looked at so far, the word, the light, everything that Jesus is all that he's revealed himself to be, all that his name entails. He's the word who is the eternal son of God that then became a man to rescue us from darkness. That's what it means to receive Jesus. No more, no less. Again, I bring this up because there are those who make it more complicated. Some want to add to John's declaration by saying, well, regeneration doesn't happen when you trust in Jesus. It happens when you get baptized. Or it happens after you keep a certain amount of sacraments or you perform a certain amount of rituals. Or they say it doesn't happen until you join our church organization. But does John say that here? John says no such thing. He says, really simple, verses 10 and 11, the lost are lost because they remain what they've always been by never trusting in Jesus, right? And then he says the saved are saved because Jesus graciously regenerates them the moment they trust in him, period period. Others like to add to John's declaration by saying something else. They would say, well, it's not really that simple. I know you're saying it's simple, but it's not really that simple. In other words, they would say that God must regenerate you, make you born again first before you can believe. Because there is no innate goodness in you that you could believe, and therefore you need to be regenerated, made born again first to believe. But again, does John say that here? John says no such thing. John makes it really clear that faith comes before regeneration. Really clear. So the lost, again, verses 10, 11, the lost are lost because they chose to reject Jesus, not because God doesn't regenerate them. And the saved are saved because they received Jesus, not because God decided to regenerate a select group of people. Can I encourage you? Please don't ignore that John repeats himself in this verse because it's almost like he says, I know they're going to mess this up. I know there's going to be entire theological systems built on not doing what I just said, on ignoring what I just said. So don't ignore that John repeats it twice here. Don't give in to the vain philosophies of men that feed our pride-filled intellect. How does this new birth happen? What does it mean that Jesus recreates us? Verse 13, 
He explains how we're born again next, which we're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How does regeneration occur? Well, it says, which refers to those who received him. Those who received him were born not of blood. Three things, no. One, yes. Not of the blood, not of blood, none of the will of the flesh, none of the will of man, but of God. Now, this phrase, we're born, this verb, the tense, again, conveys a snapshot. So, like we ask the question, okay, so how does being born again happen? Like, do I need to go back into a womb? Like, what's the gestation period on this? Like, how long do I have to cook? No, it's a moment. It's not a process. And that moment is when we believe. We are regenerated. We are born. Now, the verb's also written in a way that it means that we're caused to be born. In other words, we don't birth ourselves. So what is the cause of our new birth? Well, John tells us it's not three things. Number one, it's not of blood. Literally, it's plural of bloods. In other words, it's not from our ancestors. They don't birth us. It's not descent from our ancestors. They don't give us this new birth. Then he says, nor is it the will of the flesh. And I, I realize this goes counter to a lot of theologians, but if you read the guys who like know the language, they all agree. There's no other way to understand this but other than not from sexual desire. So it didn't happen because of your ancestry. It didn't happen because two people got together and boom, there you were, born again. He says, it's also not of the will of man, which refers to a husband's desire for a family. What is John saying? He's saying the new birth is nothing like our physical birth, all right? Nothing like our physical birth at all. It's a spiritual birth. Later in John, Jesus will call it in John 3 being born from above, and he's going to contrast it with our physical birth. He says it's nothing like our physical birth. You know, the, the circumstances of, of your physical birth into this dark and lost world, it, maybe it was that you came from an illustrious heritage, an, an illustrious family, or an illustrious people group. Maybe, maybe you come from Israel. You know, maybe you, you've had access to the scriptures and stuff where some of us were just full-fledged heathens. But he says, that's not what makes you born again. None of those things. Not your ancestry, you know, whatever it might be. He says, well, we could have also been the byproduct of two unimportant people getting together and boom, baby on the way. That's not how being born again happens. Nor is it just from the simple desire of a man to have a family. Our spiritual birth isn't like any of those things. There is no gestation period. Your country of origin, your ethnicity, your family name, or even the moral circumstances of your birth, they give you no advantage, no disadvantage. The nude birth, in fact, doesn't consider any of those things because it's of God. It's a supernatural act of God that occurs the moment you believe. Isn't that awesome? Because some of us come from not so illustrious heritages. Some of us, maybe where we come from is well-known and it's, we're proud of it and maybe sometimes we don't know even who our parents might be maybe experience the sadness that comes from that. Either way, what's awesome is to know that whether our family history is wonderful or awful, none of it matters now because our history is now God's history. And God's history is one of eternal, perfect union and communion between the Father and the Son. 
That's what you're born into now. It's a spiritual birth. You're part of the family of God. That's what happens. So you don't have to go into a womb again. You don't have to experience a birthing process. It's just by a supernatural act of God where he says, you're now part of my family. You're born again. Isn't that awesome? If you have received Jesus, then God has gifted you the privilege of being part of all that's his. And all you had to do was receive his light, to trust upon him. Do you see how wonderful and simple salvation is? Isn't that glorious? Like, I know for me, over the course of my Christian life, especially in the early years, it was a real struggle, wondering if my born-again process was complete. I would have a bad day or have a bad week or a bad month. I'd fall into sin. Sometimes I'd walk right through the no trespassing sign and just disobey the Lord. And I would sit there and at the end of my day, you lay in bed and you're like, Lord, am, am I even yours? Do I even belong to you? Like, when will I know? When will I, when will I finally finish my gestation period? I didn't word it that way, but I just never had that confidence that I was his, that it was a done deal. But isn't it awesome to know that to as many as received him, it's a done deal. Amen? It's a done deal. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. My future is set. My relationship with him is clear. And therefore, when I do blow it, I can go to his throne of grace, confess my sin, and say, Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to follow you. And he forgives me, and he shows me mercy, and he raises me up, and he fills me with his spirit, and I go out and he works in my life, changing me to make me more like him day by day. Amen? Amen? That's not a privilege that the unbeliever has. But if you're saved, it is, because you're a child of God. Now, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, John wrote his gospel so that you might know exactly who Jesus is, and, and as a result, you would trust in him. So, as the team comes up, and, and I'm going to pray, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that, to trust in Jesus. Remember I, I said this book is the book to invite an unbelieving friend or family member or whatever. Keep doing that because I'm going to do this every Sunday we do the book of John. But I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've been ignoring or rejecting Jesus' light, you know, have you considered that you're going to remain lost and in darkness? You might say, well, I, I feel fine. I don't, I don't feel like anything bad's going to happen to me. Anything different's going to happen to me. Nothing different will happen to you. You'll just continue on as you are which will be a problem because you'll be lost still. And when you breathe your last, you'll be out of time. Why choose that path when Jesus has got his hand out and he says, I love you and I want something so much better for you? Why not receive Jesus' gift of new life forever with him and his father? Let's all stand.